This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is The Bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My amazing sponsors for season two of One for the Road are Rock Sober, a brand established in 2017 and led by brothers Sean and Lee, who are both in recovery and on a shared mission to inspire and support recovering addicts worldwide. Injecting rock and roll into sobriety, Rock Sober offers merchandise and accessories to inspire and empower its community of sober badasses. The boys have recently launched a new range of alcohol-free beers which are taking the market by storm. Every beer purchased will help Rock Sober on their mission to support and inspire more people in recovery. Their message is clear. You don't need alcohol to have a good time. So let's all rock sober and remember the good times with Rock Sober AF Drink. My very special guest today on One for the Road is a writer and an actor best known as Dan Spencer on Emmerdale, and he's an all-round top man. Ladies and gentlemen, Liam Fox. So Liam, welcome to my show, One for the Road. I'm really grateful you joined me. I was introduced to you by the lovely Lisa Riley, who was on my podcast a few weeks ago, and she mentioned you. And when I heard your story, it really intrigued me because it comes from a slightly different perspective because it's not actually talking about your problem with alcohol. It's actually your dad, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Kind of 40 years, roughly, of um, coping with my dad's drinking and, uh, and mental health that's was associated with it yeah yeah so do you want to wind it back and maybe talk about your first memories of that yeah um so my old man i mean i'm 51 now so i'm going back a long time here when um when i was a kid uh, me and my sister and my mum everything was all right really my my dad would go out and have a couple of drinks but was never too bad with it you know it was it was an irish bricky so you know 1970s a certain way of life you know and he, and he was and he was fine, um, totally normal, very positive, very um, supportive of, of me and kind of saying you can be anything you want to be. You did it, you did bright, you did it. And like, I was into my art, I'd, I'd draw pictures of, of different things, and he'd, he'd take those pictures into the pub to show his mates. And going, look at this picture our Paul's done, or, or whatever. And at, at, at primary school, I was right at the top of the class, like always. And that was my mum's doing as well, because as a kid, she was always helping me do stuff, even though my mum wasn't particularly well-educated. So my primary school, everything was great. Me and my sister did well. Should have gone to grammar school, really, but wanted to be with my mates. So everything was fine. But then once uh, I went to secondary school, it, it started to change bit, bit by bit. So I'd be 
12 or 13, roughly. And my sister would be, would have been 10. And, and my dad just was increasingly coming in, having drank too much. It went from Friday night out with the lads to, you know, eventually Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, after a couple of years, you know, drinking and, and, and then coming back and just, just talking utter tripe, you know, and it was, it was awful, really, because really, you, you're young and you don't know what to do about it. And you think that it's, children of alcoholics do, I think, you, you think that it's something to do with you, something why you're not a good enough kid or my sister's not a good enough kid. Why can't they be like they were before, you know? And, and, he, and he was, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't drunk all the time. I have these memories of having a little radio cassette recorder and when my dad was hammered, I'd plug it in in the back room and I'd press play and record so I've recorded him talking through his backside, you know, just like utter drivel, blaming everybody but for him, himself for just utter nonsense. And then I'd, I'd play him that back the next day when he was sober and he'd be so embarrassed and like, oh, gee, I'm not, I'm not drinking again. I tell you what, I'm never drinking again. Well, I to that, you know. And, uh, and, and it, it didn't, you know, it, it would go through periods then where he, he didn't drink or get too leathered for months on end but eventually he'd fall back into it he'd like he'd go out for one drink and then the the, the, the cycle would start so and so while this was happening my, my school work started to go downhill I mean I always blamed the school for being rubbish and it it wasn't the best but we were going through teacher strikes as well in the in the late 80s so he'd go in at nine o'clock and be sent home for two hours and have to go it was an absolute madness kids going on strike against the teachers it was just weird and I always blame that for me going from like you know, a star student when I started to come out with one O level at 16. But looking back now, my dad's behaviour had a, a massive impact on that because I'd gone from being really proud of my dad. I had this thing, I, I respected this Irish hard man, you know, and, you know, th thought it was like the best thing since sliced bread. And then, and then suddenly that image of my dad being what I thought he was, wasn't there. And that support telling me that I was this, that, and the other, and I could do this, and I could do the other. We'd, we'd still be there when he was sober, but the, when he was drunk, it was crap. And I, I remember my sister on the on the bottom of the stairs, she would have been about 11 or 12, just crying when he came in again, talking through his ass. And it, it, it never, he never hit anybody. That's the one thing he never did. Never got to that stage. Although there was a point where I pushed him to the floor because I thought he might hit somebody. But that was, that was kind of later on. So from 85, 86 was when it really hit a peak. But my mum put up with my dad until 1995. And that period was awful. I don't, I don't know how my mum did it. I, I really don't. I mean, she obviously loved him, but I don't know. She, in, in this day and age, I think because she wasn't financially independent, uh, she had a job, but she couldn't have afforded to move away. But she, she just didn't feel able to do it. So she kept doing that thing like people do. Oh, he'll change. You know, loads of people who, who have been in potentially abusive or relationships with a drinker or with a narcissist or whatever, where women generally, but sometimes men, sit there and think somebody's going to change. Well, they're not going to change unless they want to change. So that went on and on and on and on. And then I went to uni in, in 1993 at Salford. I had several jobs, decided I wanted to be an actor. I was going to go and do that. My dad was very rarely around. Uh, there's, there's people I've known all my life who, who never met my dad until my wedding last year, you know. And, and it's like, you look back and you go, you know, one of my groomsmen who I've known since I was 14, he says, that's the first time I've met your dad. I went, Jesus Christ, he was always in the pub, wasn't he? You, you realise then, it's like, that is absolutely mental. So 95 was, was, kind of, was kind of the point where I was in second year at Salford Uni, Loving life at uni, which I didn't go away to uni because I, mean, I was only in Stockport. Anyway, it wasn't a million miles from Salford. But I kind of felt like my mum needed me at home because, you know, my dad was around. There's, there's a bit of that subconsciously. I don't know if that was a, a conscious decision as such. So, but what happened was in May, May 95, my mum went out for a bit and she'd always left this back window open. But at the bottom of the window was a load of scaffolding and... um my mum came, I, I came in actually, my mum had been out about 40 minutes and I came in and uh, all the scaffolding was up the back of the house. The window had been opened and my video camera that I used for all my filming at Salford Uni it was gone and, and the front door was open and uh, I thought, what's going on here? We got the police involved and blah, blah, blah. And then 
my mate, because my mate shared, we bought this video camera together. They were at two grand at the time. And, you know, I was a student and my best mate, Chris, lived around the corner. We shared this camera. And um, he went out and went around these pubs to try and find out if this camera was being sold anywhere. And uh, he found out it was sold in the pub that my dad used to go in, Portway and Withyshaw. So that, that Friday, when, when this happened, my dad disappeared. He went off to Ireland on the boat, went back. He'd not been, he'd not been back. See, this was 1995. He'd not been back to Ireland since about 67. So he went back and then turned up on the Monday, Tuesday without a word. He stood at the back door going, all right, how are we doing? Blah, blah. I, I just looked at him, just dumbfounded. My mum said to him, see that lot there? And pointed to a load of bin bags full of his clothes and everything else. He ain't coming back in this house. And he was going, what do you mean? Not coming back in the house. Said, That's it. I'm done. So she, because uh, she'd got another job then working at the airport and was earning some more money and a bit more independent. And uh, I find this funny. It wasn't funny at all. But he, he slept in the shed under all these bin bags and came out the next day with all his face bitten by all these bugs and stuff. And it, it, it was like going, serves you right, you dozy get, you know, because that's kind of how it was. And anyway, he left and I didn't, I didn't see him for about th- three years. Uh, and in that point, I mean, I'll go back to it later about when we'll chat a bit more about why my dad was as he is because he did, did have reasons in his childhood, I think, of, of why he is. So I saw him about 1999, and he was, um, this was when my first wife was, was pregnant um, with my son Ben. And she said, You should get in touch with your dad again. And I was reluctant to. But um, at one point, we thought he was dead. I, I came in, and my mum said, Whoa. I've been talking to somebody, they reckon your dad might be dead. I went, why? He says, well, he's not been seen in the pub for three months. I was like, oh, maybe he's just not drinking, you know. And he wasn't dead. He, he'd, uh, he'd, he'd hooked up with this landlady and got with her. And, for, uh, and once my son was born, he did cut down on the drinking. And from 1999 till 2015, he was kind of all right. Uh, he was happy with Jackie. It was, it was his new partner. They'd never married. But it, it was, she had a really kind of uh, pretty heavy-going family, really. And there was, there was a lot of stuff involved with that. But it never got to them. They were both alcoholics who'd stopped drinking. So that kind of helped. I think they'd have the odd can and stuff, you know. But for whatever reason, they seemed to be able to manage it. But when Jackie died, uh, I knew, me and me, my sister knew it wasn't going to be good. And I tried to do everything. I bought my dad a guitar, booked him guitar lessons, wanted to take him to Graceland's for a holiday. Lo- loads of stuff because I knew where he was going to go to. So basically, between 2015 and him dying in February this year, it's been absolutely awful. Just horrendous. Cr- crashing his motorbility car into a taxi when he was absolutely leathered, going for his vodka around the corner, getting into fights with taxi drivers. Just, I mean, it got to the point from about 2017 till his death that he was drinking at least one litre, usually two litres of vodka every day when he was on a binge. And and he would do that for two weeks with no food, lose two or three stone in that period. The weight loss was phenomenal. He looked terrible. He could hardly speak. He was... He didn't know what he was doing. He was waking up with stab marks in his hands and, and, and all sorts of stuff. And I'd be going around with my sister and then and cleaning up all sorts of mess. And my son came out of cleaning stuff up one occasion. I didn't want him there. I didn't want him to see it, but he insisted. Watch my granddad. I want to be there. So, you know, about that time, Ben was 17. So I took him around there. But the, the end came in, in February this year. He'd, he'd been in hospital on three occasions with, with a drink. Obviously, lockdown made things progressively worse I initially wouldn't have my dad living with me I didn't have the room in my old house anyway but as a kid dealing with him I didn't want him in the house I didn't want to have to go through that again I didn't want my son seeing what I had to see because I won't wish that on anybody but at Christmas when he came out of the hospital again when when he'd been through all sorts of whatever drug they put him on uh I don't know if it was lithium I, I, I kind of lose track now uh he was losing his mind and I did say dad this isn't happening again I'd moved house, moved to a bigger house. I said, you need to move to our house, bring the dog, and because I'm not having this anymore. And he said, no, 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 that's it. That's the last time. I'm telling you now, I will not be drinking. I, I know it's going to kill me. I'm, I swear to you, Paul, I swear to you, that's that. Two weeks later, he was dead. He did it again. Yeah. And that was that. Do you know what? It's, it's such a um, heart-wrenching story, isn't it? But I, mm. I kind of wanted to wind it back a bit to when, when your mum kicked him out, yeah. How old was you then? 
I was 25 by then. 25. Yeah. Did your mum ever talk to you about how it was for her? Because you said in the beginning of this podcast that, you know, God knows how she stuck it and whatever, but she probably did it for you and your sister, you know, yeah. because as adults, you sort of absorb it. And I remember my wife, she used to hide it because of the, the stigma and the shame and talking about it as a partner's perspective is, you know, you don't want to admit it. So she probably sort of lasted till 1995. And then that um, debacle happened. And when he walked in, that was it. That was enough. And she yeah. she did something about it. But did you ever manage to talk to your mum about those early days? Yeah, I think we talk about it quite a lot. I mean, because my mum, she's like proper old-fashioned northern mother where she's never been emotional. She's never like a huggy mum. I said to her once, so the last time you hugged me was 1974 and I went to school, which is... Uh, and that's not in a non-lovely way. It's like I've got a few mates who like that with parents. They're just not that huggy stuff. But she was, I knew she was always there, my mum, you know. So when I th- think it comes to me dad, being like that probably made her quite tough, you know, of just dealing with it. And luckily, my nan and granddad, who were my um, mum's parents, were really good as well, you know. that They were great grandparents, really good. So that was... That probably helped her, and she talked to me nan about it, and us. You know, we'd all have enough. We'd all talk about him, and we'd say, "Mum, we need to kick him out and, and get rid." And I, but I think the fact that he never hit her probably made her stay longer. If he'd ever gone to that, he would have been out the door years before that. He, he never got that. She, she always could see a chink of light in her head. Even now, she was talking to somebody the other day about the fact that he never hit her. And then bizarrely, this this, this other person, well, obviously won't mention the names, told her that, that their dad used to hit her mum. Years ago, as a kid, which completely surprised me. Almost she went, you never thought that was you behind closed doors. Oh God, all these years. And I went, well, you, know, you never know, do you? So, so to her, him not being physically violent probably always gave her some hope. I've never seen my mum cry in my life. Nothing ever. But it's incredible, isn't it? That these days, because we know a lot about more, more about mental health and that it, it doesn't have to be physical abuse. It could be mental abuse, and she yeah. probably suffered a lot at night. Um, crying inside herself, yeah. you know, when when she's thinking about how it's affecting you both and how it's affecting her, because that's what my wife had to put up with. As soon as my eyes started going, she lost me, yeah. you know. And she's, I walked into the house with her four kids. Basically, I moved in. All of a sudden, I'm drinking every day. I'm slurring. I'm falling asleep on the sofa. So it's the inner torment that um, your mum probably went through. Yeah. But if she's not a speaker as well, she probably bottled that all up as well. And and that's harmful in itself. I could, I, the only time I remember losing it was he, he came in drunk one night. I mean, mum was only 20 when she had me. So I, I, I would have been about 17. So my mum would have been 37. So quite young, actually. And I, I remember him coming in drunk. And then my mum screaming at him saying she, for the last two weeks, she thought she was pregnant. And she didn't want to be pregnant to him again. And it, this, that's the only time I saw her explode and completely lose it with him. You know, and he didn't drink again after that for a bit. So, yeah, it was obviously all built up inside. But when she started working at the airport, she she was working with other blokes and she'd probably talked to them about what was going on and kind of got herself back. And she wasn't just this alcoholic's wife. She suddenly was, you know, uh, and her dad had died as well. Her dad died the year before. And I think it became like, I'm not dealing with this now. How did um, his drinking affect your relationship with alcohol? Um not massively, really. See, the one, the one thing I would say with, with alcohol is, I, w- I would say at the minute, like a lot of people, with so many people have drank too much in lockdown and put on the lockdown stone, you know. So I'm, I'm trying to go on a keto diet at the minute, go to the gym, drink less, everything else. Um, but w- one thing I always decided to do was, if I was ever feeling low or depressed as such, never to touch alcohol. Because I, I, I always saw it as being something that would make matters worse. So that, that's something I've never done. Never do it because that was my dad's thing. He felt like crap. He'd have a drink, uh, and even to the end, he'd go. I felt so lonely and miserable. I just have a drink to make things better. And you'd have these discussions about going, Dad, how many years you need to know it's not going to make it better. Which, you know, you're talking to somebody with a disease, aren't you? So mm. you think you're going to make a difference? You know, I, I, I'm shouting and screaming at him all the time. But I, I kind of my relationship with alcohol. I don't know. I never, never wanted to not drink because of my dad's relationship with it so i've always used it differently but i've said that uh i had a, a, a chat with my wife this morning you know because we're coming on to this and both of us go in 
Didn't we really want to drink much anymore? Because we'd had a barbecue at the weekend and stuff and not particularly drinking that much, but you know what, by then in the morning, because you're getting older and you're thinking, just a bit slower today, where actually I'd normally get up, be going to the gym, walk the dogs, come back, work, work on this film script that I'm, I'm doing at the minute, because I've not been in work this year hardly at all. So that, that's, with my dad dying, that, that's been difficult as well, actually. Just having all this spare time, I've had to fill my head after, after my dad dying a little bit. But um, we never got down to that lockdown lunchtime thing either. It wasn't like open a bottle at 12 o'clock or any, anything like that. But definitely drank too much in lockdown, I'd say that. But I, I don't feel that I have um, a, an emotional connection to it. I never use it for anything emotional. That, that's great in a way because um, a lot of people that grow up um, with alcoholics, they go one way or the other, don't they? Yeah. You know, like my son, he doesn't really drink. And I'm so grateful for that because if he did, I would have immense guilt about that. And and he's, he's so proud of me, what I'm doing now. Yeah. I mean, he's 27 now. He's a DJ. Uh, and whenever we go out for dinner or wherever it is, he'll have a soft drink. And that's not just to support me. That's just because he doesn't really want to drink. But I also think there's a complete new wave, a new generation coming through that are more health conscious. And it's not so much about the not drinking, it's about being more healthy. And I think what you said about your dad being an Irish brickie in the 70s, I mean, there was a lot less knowledge around alcohol in those days. Things like smoking, I mean, you're a little bit younger than me, but you would get on a plane and smoke yeah. on the back of a plane. You go to a cinema and smoke in a cinema. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Or, or on a bus, oh. top of a bus. Yeah. You know, and what I'm hoping now is that's why I keep banging the drum is that I want alcohol to get like that. So the advertising is stopped. And, you know, it's wherever you go, it's justified. And I've always said it's the only drug you have to justify giving up. This wine o'clock thing in it. And everything else, everything celebrated with a drink and blah, blah. All these, like, dudes you might go to, you know, working in TV as well, champagne on arrival and blah, blah, blah. And do you know what? I think I've got a bit bored with it, really. Yeah. And But like you say, this generation, my son, he'll have a drink. He got drunk once when he was 14, <laughs> fell through the door at this party. Um, but he's never really drank since. And, and if he does, he might have a bottle of cider. Mm. That's it. Never goes out to get drunk. And... All, all these mates are, are the same. Yeah, it's definitely a generational thing. So let's go back to your dad. Like, because when I had Sarah Drage on my podcast, which you've listened to, I've worked a lot of her recently and I think she's amazing. She's just got a way around her that's really getting a message out there. And now she's going through the guilt of how she treated her dad because she really didn't understand the disease of alcoholism, you know, and she swore at him and shouted. And and a lot of that was probably unleashed sort of emotions of how she grew up and how it made her feel, you know, the lack of worth and like you talked about at the beginning. And you mentioned that, you know, you was angry with your dad. But in hindsight now, do you kind of understand it a little bit more? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think so. I think I, I understood it at the time. Uh, and me and my sister would go through phases of being good cop, bad cop with him. Mm. You know, there was a point where I'd put up with him all the time and be dealing with his madness. My sister didn't want to know. She she was like, I'd cut him off. She, she was sick of it. And then when I couldn't do with it anymore, she came back in the picture, mm. you know. But when he died, went to the hospital, I was still angry with him. When he was, because he'd, he'd, he'd had the COVID in November and then, it, and this, I mean, it, it was it, well. He was in hospital and, and, and for the drinking, and in the in, in the in the February, his, his 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 whole body had just collapsed really. So he caught this other virus and 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 died and and died of that. But in the hospital, and my sister was going, "Tell him you love him. Tell him you love him." He was panicking for air, and I still I couldn't tell him I loved him. Then I was just sat sat there looking at him, thinking, "Jesus Christ!" I, I knew it was coming. This you stupid sod, you know. But then on the on the on the on the Sunday that he died, I went in and it was it was different. I was he, he could probably hear me, and I said that I said love you, dad, and that was it. And yeah, it was probably not dealt with it fully. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of I've just had me um it was, it, it, his life was so weird. I've just had my dad's headstone put on 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 Friday actually. I was gone to the grave because that was my dad's problem. His, his mum died in 1980. She was the she had no headstone on that grave. 
and my dad wasn't in a position because he wasn't seen as the next of kin. He, him and his siblings had to hide their, the fact that they were this, this woman's child. And that was something that went back to Ireland in the 50s, which was horrendous. So I know exactly why it was. I, I, knew, I knew what that was about. And last year, I took him to the cemetery and he put this little cheap plaque he got out of a magazine onto his mum's grave. And he was a bit emotional, holding it back. And it was like, <clears throat> so when my dad died, I thought, right, I'm putting an end to all my dad's hurt. So I let other family members know who didn't know my dad was their brother. I rang them, opened the can of worms, and it was fine. It was absolutely fine. If my dad had only told this brother who he was, it would have all been fine. And my dad just bottled this up all those years. So now there's a headstone, and he's on there with his mum, recognises her son now. So, Oh, that's amazing, mate. Yeah. That's really amazing. That's what I did. I nearly got emotional then about it, and I will do. Um, yeah, it's like I've closed the, uh, the book on it a bit. And I imagine, really, for all of what you're going through now and what you went through then, you need to heal as well, don't you? Um, and, and I think talking about it is key. When, when you're ready, you know, hopefully talking to me can start that process, you know, because it's a lifetime of pain, isn't it? And, yeah. you know, as men, we're mm. kind of renowned for just cracking on with it, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And I still feel like not being in work this year, like I've not been in work that much just because of COVID. They're using certain people at certain times mm. and it's it's to do, do with protocols and set, you know, people aren't in much. But you start to feel like, well, I'm not good enough. Uh, I'm, maybe it's because I'm not good enough. Because I've been in this show for 10 years and I still feel like giving teacher an apple. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. going, oh, have, I, have I done the right job? I'm 51. What do I need to do that for? Do you know what I mean? And and it, and it's all linked to my dad and and, mm. and self-worth. And I'm, I am a really positive person. Mm. You know, I'm always Mr. Cat. And, and I am, you know, I, gen I generally do bat it off. I've got that side from my mum where I just put up with stuff. But yeah, it's good to talk about it. I've written a film about all my dad's life and that's been good to kind of, you know, because I started that while he was alive. So my dad was telling me a lot of information. So it's a film I've got to make now because he was part of that process. So that feels like that's a healing thing to be writing that as well. And I suppose, you know, it, it's a journey for you as well because you talk about it and then you feel, do you know what, I feel really upset about that. I can't I can't feel those feelings anymore because I get too upset and then maybe yeah. you stop. It, it's a never-ending thing, isn't it? But I think... You know, the whole the whole thing what you just said about handing the teacher an apple is is a lifetime of you not feeling good enough for your dad. But maybe when you understand the disease side of it, it gives you maybe another perspective, you know, because when I was drinking, the last thing I ever wanted to do was hurt the people around me. Mm. You know, I, I used to hide alcohol. I, I I would meet my wife at the pub and say, I've been shopping and I've just got in here when I'd actually had five pints and stuff like yeah. that. And I'm not a deceitful person. But for me, it's because I felt I needed to have it because if I just met her after work, what we would drink in that small amount of time wouldn't be enough for me. It's things like that. So it's your your dad really had all his own demons going on, plus the addiction of the alcohol. And in essence, he, I mean, I don't know him, your relationship, but I'm pretty sure that the last thing you'd want to do is hurt you. But it's it's how you deal with it now, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think I think that's why you put up with it, don't you? Because you you know he's not doing it on purpose, but you just get frustrated, don't you? Yeah. And it's like there was a couple of years ago I said, right, I'm not seeing him again. I can't deal with it anymore. And then you ring up sober and you go, oh, all right. And you you know <laughs> you do because he was all you know. My dad was like life and soul. My, my dad, you know, we had all these builder mates around uh, South Manchester, and you know, was getting barred from all sorts of pubs. He was a nutter, but he he. Uh, he was a singer. He, 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 my dad literally would. If he, when he died, all, all his mates in the pubs were saying, Elvis is dead. Like Elvis yeah. has died all over again, you know. And him not doing that is probably the reason I'm an actor now. It's fascinating because you talking about him makes me want to be his mate. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I can imagine he was a right character. And when you, when you was doing the impersonation of him earlier, like his voice and that, I was smiling yeah. because. I think when you go around the boozers and that, you know, I was I was a regular at a pub where I lived, and um, you know, I was named Glugs because I would walk in there and they go Glugsy, Glugsy's in the house, you know, because I would drink 
really, really quickly. And I could drink 10 pints. And I used to drink light and lager then, which was, I don't know whoever invented that drink. But <laughs> do you know why I drank it? Because when they poured the lager, it should be half a pint of lager and half the bottle of light. But they always poured more lager. So I always thought, well, after 10 pints, I'm probably getting 11 and a half. Which is ridiculous, right? I used to play pool or darts, and I would go in there some Sundays at midday, hanging out of my ass from the night before, right? Knocking on the door at midday to go in. They'd open these big double doors up. I'd sit there, Glugsy, the landlord, and that lion lager, son. God, you look like you've had a skinful. Yeah, yeah, and it'd be a beautiful day outside. And I think, well, this is it. I'm in here for the long haul. And I used to fall out of there at closing time at um, half ten that night, you know. And and it's crazy, but I I would have probably drank with people like your dad. Without without a doubt. I mean, that was was a certain generation, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, they they were all at it. I mean, I worked with, I did a load of role play work, acting stuff for West Yorkshire Place years ago. And uh, it was run by a load of ex-cops, you know, and they were great. The stories about, you know, they'd go into investigate some crime and they'd be paid to sit in a pub all day and, and listen to the the old boys and they'd get absolutely leathered uh, yeah. waiting to listen for a story, smoking 20 fags and having eight pints with criminals around them. And I, I, I think, you know, that was just the way the world was. It's not, I think it's quite the same for us now, is it, our, our generation? It's definitely, like we said, better with the younger generation, but it's still there in our generation. You know, absolutely. And it, and it feels different. I mean, back in the day, you would smoke in a pub, you know? And I remember that um, I smoked roll-ups years ago, like an old man, you know? But I would never really smoke if I wasn't drinking. Now, one went with the other. Yeah. Um, and I'll go in the pub, I'll have my backy, and if it's quiet, I'd roll 10 fags in the corner and then tuck them in the pouch. And, and I think when smoking was banned in the pubs, I think it's a bit like lockdown. All of a sudden, people stopped going out because then... Uh, supermarket started introducing wine bottles like free for a tenner mm. and even me I was thinking do you know what I can get absolutely hammered on three bottles of wine for tenner yet I would probably get then three or four pints so I started staying in as well yeah um, but these days it's so it's more sort of horribly subtle do you know what I mean it's where everyone's drinking look, at home yeah yeah, yeah, everyone's drinking, aren't they? You go. I don't remember as a kid going into Tesco or QuickSave, probably QuickSave when I was a kid, and um, but going with my mum and be, there being loads of booze everywhere. There probably was, but I don't remember it being a thing. Like my dad didn't really drink at home ever un- until the later years. When I was a kid, it was all done in the pubs, apart from Christmas Day. My mum would hate Christmas Day, so go, oh, Jesus, he started drinking at ten. It's like he could drink at home on Christmas Day, but now everyone's got like you know, several bottles of wine in the cupboard and yeah. everything else and all that sort of drink. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, for our generation, it's maybe it's worse than it was 20 years ago because because of that, I don't know. Yeah, and, and because of lockdown, you've got the free pouring. You know, yeah. you, you're at home. And uh, yeah. for me with the vodka, I started drinking vodka because I was getting fat with the wine because I was literally drinking two or three bottles of wine and the calories on that alone is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. So I started the vodka and when... When my mum was alive, she used to come to my house and stay with her husband, John, and they used to have a measuring cup. So I used to buy my own vodka because they would bring a litre of vodka for the whole weekend, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, right? Yeah. I would buy three litres of vodka for the Friday, Saturday and Sunday, and I used to hide it under the sink because I thought if I get stuck into their vodka, that would be gone by about 10 (laughs) o'clock that night, you know, and they would pour a measure and then top it up with tonic, where my free pouring would be like, uh, 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 you know, and I was literally legless by nine and quite often would just sliver off to bed and leave them there. But with the lockdown now, it, it's the earlier and earlier drinking. You know, a lot of people are coming to me and, and they're back to work now. And at two o'clock, three o'clock, they're getting real cravings for, for a drink and they're really worried about it, you know. Yeah. So I think now... I, I think the statistics that I heard the other day were there are, were two and a half million people in the UK with alcohol addiction. Wow. And that's gone up to three and a half million now. So a million in a year. Wow. At least. I bet there's more than that. Yeah. That's scary, isn't it? Yeah. 
And it's funny what you say about the advertising of it as well earlier, that that has got to change. It is everywhere, and it? it's on TV constantly. It needs to stop. But you've got all the lobbying with government, haven't you? So the government needs to... But there, there's other yeah. things, right? So am I right in saying that in Emmerdale that you star in, there, there's mm. been a story on that about alcoholism? Yeah, we lived drinking, actually. Yeah, because she's only a young character in it. Yeah. Which is, that's an interesting angle on it, actually. Really clever by, by the writers to, to do that, because you never really consider alcoholics at that age. But, you know, that's been a lot. And it's been a nice long-term story as well. I think it's crept up on her over time, which it does, doesn't it? Nobody decides to be an alcoholic. They just suddenly think, I'm going to... Well, it gets hold of you. And I always say, like, um, drinking one bottle of wine is enough. It wasn't for me, but I'm a big bloke, and I, I could drink a bottle of wine in 10 minutes. Sure. When I used to hide it, I would take a glass of wine into the bedroom, say to my wife, I'm just going to have a shower. And the reason I took a glass of wine in was so that if she smelt my breath when I come out, I could say, mm. well, I've had a glass of wine. But I used to hide a bottle of wine in the downstairs bedroom, turn the shower on, and by the time I had a shower and come out, I'd necked a whole bottle of wine because that gave me a head start wow. to think, right, I don't have to justify my drinking now because I've already done a bottle of wine anyway so i should be at a certain level that i'm not going to panic about it right but a lot of women that i talk to you know they say oh i i drink uh, half a bottle of wine or a bottle of wine a night but then the slippery slope is when they start to crack open the second bottle for that extra glass and before they know it they're getting stuck right into the second bottle and then two or three months later, they're finishing that as well. And that's yeah. when it really, really goes bandy, you know, yeah. like. So so it's a terrible addictive drug. And when you give up, I mean, I, I know there's like periods, like, you know, people do sober October or whatever, like that, of certain periods where I thought, you know, I need to get fit now, so I won't drink for a few months. And uh, it's the way people go, oh, you've done well. Oh, I couldn't do that. Oh, you've not drunk for how long? You think, no, I haven't. And it... It's, it's amazing how many people feel like it's such yeah. a tough thing to do for most people. But if you if, if you've not got gone down that road where you're on two or three bottles a night anyway, you should be able to go. All right, I'm not going to drink for a bit. I'll I'll, I'll get fit. You know, but it, you, it's a, it's an interesting um, conversation because mm. some people it's a habit, right? So. I did a live with a TV presenter, right? And she just said to me randomly, oh, yeah, I only have a couple of glasses of wine with dinner. And I said, what, every night? And she said, yeah, 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 just a couple. That's all right. I'm okay with it and that. And I said, well, firstly, that's double your units a week at least. Mm. And secondly, if you're doing that in front of your kids when you're having dinner, they're growing up to think that's just normal. You know, oh, mummy's having a glass of wine to relax. Mummy's having a glass of wine because she's had a hard day, you know, mm. and it's the message that that gives as well. So I'm not anti-alcohol, but I, I do believe that we're pretty numb to the dangers of it and how quickly it can turn. And that's even in sobriety, you know, like it doesn't matter how long you've been sober. I know people have been 10 years sober and had one drink and within a month they're back to where they were before. So you always have to be mindful. But there are people like my wife that can take or leave it. And that's interesting as well. So it sounds like you and your wife are like that, you know, that when when you suggest, you know, I, I haven't had a drink for months, so what? To yeah. some people, that's a real big deal because yeah. they rely on it. And it's all the false beliefs around alcohol as well. Well, I need it to unwind. I need it to sleep. I need it to reduce my anxiety. All, all the false beliefs, actually. And there's other things you can do. Because it does the opposite, doesn't it? You know. I, oh, yeah. I mean, that's one thing with me and my wife. When, when, you, when you don't drink for a week or two and, you, and both go in, oh, my God, I love sleep. Oh, these sleeps are great, aren't they? And go in, I don't want to drink again because this sleep is just amazing. And no anxiety, like you say, clarity that we were talking about earlier, mm. of and focus and knowing where you're going. It's yeah. And the more I'm talking about it now, I'm thinking I'm never drinking again. But we'll never know. But it, yeah, I, I definitely think uh, yeah, all those things that certain people think alcohol does for them, uh, it does the exact opposite. It makes matters. Yeah, worse. it does. And the anxiety is one of them. I quite often set people challenges of either thirty days or hundred days. And that's a big one. I say, you know, if you feel stressed now about the thought of giving up alcohol, you give it up 
and then tell me in 30 days or 100 days how stressed you feel. And I'll guarantee one of the huge benefits you will feel is reduced anxiety, and that's fact. Mm. Yeah, because absolutely. you know, I was thinking this morning, right? I said to you before this interview that I I've been awake since three o'clock, and I've done loads of emails, paperwork. I've been to the gym, personal training session. We're on here now. Now, if I had wound that back three years, I would have literally been awful on a Monday morning. You know, I'd have had a whole weekend of heavy, heavy drinking, and. I get up now, and even if it was three o'clock, I still feel all right. I, you know, a little bit tired, but that's it. Mm-hmm. When I woke up, my, the, the pressure of a Monday morning, the unorganized state I was in, and I couldn't even look at a neighbor or anything like that, or keep my head down, or wear sunglasses in the winter, or, or all these things that you, you can't perform normally. You know, you, you can't even have a chat in the local shop on the way to work or something and it's crazy it's not good we've, we've all got to start li- living differently I, I think and uh i suppose things like this and, and you're doing these podcasts that are there to help people and i actually think the quite famous now adrian child's thing from a few yeah. years ago on bbc iplayer when it became about his you know he was on 150 units a week or something and then yeah. realized that he saw the damage and he's done that long term but he, he's managed to get down to his uh, allowed units for the week yeah yeah and he's happy so he's still drinking and but yeah, it's a really healthy-ish. Yeah, and oh. and I, as I say, I'm not anti-alcohol. I mean, David Nutt, Professor David Nutt, he, I've got massive respect for him. He's not anti-alcohol. He's got, in fact, he owns a wine bar with his daughter in Ealing. And um, I'm an ambassador for Alcohol Change UK. They're not anti-alcohol. It, it's educating people how to use it properly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, I'm and that, for some of us, that's really hard. So for your dad... To say to him, look, you've got to keep to your allocated 14 units a, a week would be a laughable for him. Probably. He'd be doing that in an hour. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. But um, unfortunately, you know, he went down that road. And I imagine, and I shouldn't be talking on his behalf, but I imagine that he there was no real help for him because sometimes you're on a mission, aren't you? And you said meeting that landlady ironically kind of helped him a little bit too. Yeah. Alcoholics. And and maybe that was the key for him as well, that they sort of bounced off each other. But in the end, it got him. Yeah. Once she died, he couldn't. Because he felt like, because it, it, I don't think he ever loved my mum enough. I think my mum loved him more than he loved her, you know, but he couldn't get out of that marriage because my mum was dead you know was no hassle in these days you know you won't go and get drunk you just finish the relationship most people would mm. so he felt like jackie was his um the love of his life but in a lot of respects she mothered him like he'd never been mothered by his own mother yeah so it was a little bit screwed up that relationship and the fact that she did everything for him she adored him and my dad was everything to her but it was very a lot about the mum you know, I mean, and this is the thing, but knowing that it was my dad's mental health, you know, all, all the pain from his childhood was like when he was going through all this and you speak to the authorities and everybody's trying to do something. The one thing that came up all the time, which is something that used to drive me mad, but maybe, you know, just how it is, was the fact that my dad had capacity. So there was nothing they could do. He didn't want to be sectioned or put anywhere. So he'd always go and it'll be fine. And you kind of go in. I know years ago, family could get people sectioned and then that went the other way because people were getting sectioned who shouldn't have been. But nowadays, when somebody's mental health is so bad on, you know, that's building, it's all part of the alcohol thing, you can't get him that help. It's like you can't get him into that place where he needs to go and dry out unless he wants to do it, you know, and whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but it was always a problem. Do you think that's just that he didn't want to do it or was that the stigma? Because talking to Sarah about her dad, Steve, it, it was that he didn't want to reach out for help because he, he felt incredible shame. Or do you think that your dad was in denial and he just didn't want to do anything about it? I think he was in denial. He sometimes he'd say, do you know what, I'm not, I'm not an alcoholic, I'm a depressed man who drinks. Mm. I don't know what the difference is with that. But after he died, this kind of says a lot, really. He, he did, in about 2017, go into Presswich Mental Hospital in North Manchester for, in, into a drink dependency unit. For the, that's the one time we did get him in. And he was in there for about three weeks, and he got a certificate of having achieved his three weeks and everything. Mm. And he didn't drink for a fair old while after that. And when he died, he still had the certificate by the side of his bed. So, it, obviously, 
was something he was proud of. He never passed an exam in his life, you know, apart from yeah. the driving test. So he did want to change, and that meant a lot to him that he had, he had passed something, but he did, you know, it got the better of him. And he died quite recently, right? Yeah, February 21st, yeah. Are you okay? How, how do you feel? Uh, relieved, mm. honestly. Mm. Uh, but it's really weird, because I, I have, like... I don't know, people believe in spooky stuff. I know. I've had weird experiences all my life. There's been very strange, I won't go into that side of it, but there's been very strange things that have happened after my dad died, which defy explanation. But I literally feel, I know Bill Ropes talks about this on Corey, about his spiritual beliefs. I literally feel with my dad, he's, he's just the other side of this veil. Mm. I've never really had that when someone else has died. He's literally there. So I'm good with it. And he's, there's been certain signs that have come through, that's come through, which uh, say to me, is happy where he is we had a fox that went missing when we were when i was first married and uh went missing from the house and the week my dad died my ex-wife went past this house and there was this fox in the front this pot fox near from where it got stolen from and this guy went he'd got it from market around the same time that ours went missing and the guy said this is too weird he said you take that back so my ex-wife brought it around to the house and i put it in the garden so the fox was back two days after my dad died and when my dad was sober my dad always used to say the fox is back. Do you know, there was lots of other things, but for me, maybe it's coincidence, whatever. But why did it happen two days after my dad died? Why did it come back? The fox is back was his statement. And, you know, t- believe it or not, it's... it's oh, yeah, yeah, I get that. I mean, like, I talk a lot now about what I've learned in my sobriety, which is three years in January, is that um, I believe that all the things that happened to me in my childhood were a big factor of why I drank the way I did, because I never grew up with alcoholic parents. But um, my mum left when I was 14 and it was traumatic for me, um, the way it happened. And then I started drinking really heavily. I mean, I remember, do you remember in the old days you'd get like Martini and Dubonnet and Campari oh, and yeah, all that? Yeah. I think I drank a big bottle of Dubonnet or something and was so ill after you'd think that would just put me off. Well, it put me off Dubonnet, trust me. <laughs> but um, I remember... I was so sick and that that just you know I carried on drinking from 14 you know and I've um, seen research lately that the frontal cortex of your brain stops growing when you're drinking as a child you know like it doesn't develop properly I think it develops all the time till you're 21 and that's what I mean this is what I've read and, and it delays the development of your frontal cortex but my mum right she died uh, in late 2018 and I was with her when she died and I kind of made it up with her you know I've I've always you know known something wasn't quite right but we've just gone through the motions and that and the last four days of her living I um, was holding her hand I knew she was going to die the doctors told me she hasn't got long or whatever and, and I, like you I told her I loved her and that was the first time in my life and I, and I was saying you know you're the best mom I could have and 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 she, I was holding her hand when she took her last breath, right? Yeah. About a month later, um, she visited me in my sleep. Mm-hmm. And it was the realest experience I've ever had. It was like I was there. Yeah. And it was an old house and she was about 40, looking immaculate. And she just reached out and said, Dave, I just want you to know I'm okay. And I woke up the next morning. I, I was like a real wow moment. And it, and it was very soon after that that I stopped drinking. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, Liam, I was drinking a litre of vodka a night or three bottles of wine a night. I just stopped, which defies everything because I, on paper, I should have seriously withdrawn. I should have been in rehab and whatever, but I just stopped. Wow. And I believe even now my mum's got a lot to do with this, you know, that she's by me, like you say about your dad. Yeah. Like Sarah's dad, Steve, we believe that we've been, me and Sarah have been put together. I feel Steve, a dad around me. Um, and I'm carrying on where he left off. You know, I gave up. He didn't. She had to turn his life support machine off. Wow. He's similar age to me, you know, and we're, we're doing a lot of work together. We're talking in schools. We're hopefully going to do a big project in the future and all this stuff, you know. But I feel all this serendipity really does align, doesn't it? So when you say that your dad, you feel like he's next to you, maybe you talking about it with me, with other people doing this film. Yeah. Is the legacy that, you know, and, and for you to repair yourself, to heal on what you've been through as well, maybe 
this is what it's all about. Otherwise, uh, what else can you do with uh, it? I, I think so. I mean, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, because we, 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 we had three dogs already. I mean, my dad died. We, we had to take his dog on for a bit. But his dog was very much a, um, a people dog. She didn't really want to be around other dogs. So we took our time and a friend came around and she wanted to have her. And, and Karen lives on her own. And, and really, there was a little bit of a bond between them. So we, we took my dad's dog over to Leeds, to, to Karen's house. And the next day, one of Karen's best mates, John, comes around, sits on the sofa. Tammy, the dog, is all over it. And Karen sends me a photograph. This John was wearing exactly the same clothes, the same colours that my dad always wore. A shirt in a mink green, short sleeve shirt that my dad never took off his back. And if you, if you chop John's head off on this photograph, it was my dad. Wow. When he came around the next day dressed differently, the dog wasn't all over him. And I truly feel that was my dad going, it's all right, you've done the right thing. I'm happy with Tammy being here. Don't worry about it. it, it it's cool. He could have wore anything, anything, but he wore exactly my dad's clothes without ever knowing or ever seeing my dad. That's incredible, isn't it? Isn't it? Just weird. I know a lot of people say it's coincidence, but I don't think it is. I think there's, there's something. Well, it doesn't matter what people think. It's what you think. Of course it is, yeah. I'm so, so grateful that you've... Um shared your story with me i feel you know we've been chatting for a couple of weeks now lisa put put me onto you and we've been whatsapping i feel like i know you but yeah finding out that your wife literally lived around the corner from me and you was in um northcote road the other day. <laughs> it was it was weird yeah you have jojo jojo lived up the road and a, and a best mate joe again from uni lives in uh in, in wandsworth yeah j- j- literally around the corner yeah, yeah it, it's crazy. surreal so when you're down next, t- send me a message and we can uh, chew the fat. We can have a coffee and that, and we can check in with you, make sure everything's all right and that. Yeah, and um, definitely, I- I'm just so grateful, mate. And um, good luck with the film. Good luck with Emma Dale. Yeah. And it would be great to meet up. So thanks ever so much for joining me. De- definitely up for it. It's not, you know, it, it does do you good to talk, it? and that's what all the mental health stuff's about at the minute. Mm. You know, blokes need to talk, women need to talk, we all, we all should. And it, it, and I've really enjoyed this this morning, Dave. It's uh, definitely been very positive for me. Good man. All right then, mate. Thank you so much. And let's catch up soon. All the best, mate. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. One for the Road can be found on all the usual podcast platforms. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you have a moment, then please do leave a review so that more listeners can enjoy the conversation. You can find me on Instagram at SoberDave, or drop me an email at info at davidwilsoncoaching.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, have a great week, and take care.